Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On today's episode, we're joined by Sarah Cliff, Deputy Managing Editor for Visuals at Vox and co-host of their policy-focused podcast, The Weeds. She discussed media coverage of the Affordable Care Act, what's next for healthcare in this election year, and Vox's approach to covering policy. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. Sarah Cliff with us today, a, a deeply experienced healthcare reporter, currently at Vox, but uh, also Washington Post previously, um, Newsweek, uh, political, um, and uh, it's been pretty much uh, in the front row of the healthcare reform debate uh, since the beginning, 2009, when uh, it was first introduced in the Congress. and. Uh, it still is alive and controversial, and uh, uh, so I, I, it's one of those kind of bottomless stories, I think. And, uh, yes. But uh, we're just delighted that you're here, and uh, she's currently the deputy managing editor for visuals at Vox. Sarah, welcome. Great, thank you. Well, thank you all for coming. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, as Tom mentioned, I work at Vox, um, not Fox, as we are often confused for when I'm out <laughs> reporting, which can work to your advantage or disadvantage, depending on where you are. And um, we, we are a new website we just launched about two years ago. Um, we're going to celebrate our second anniversary on April 6th. And um, it's a really exciting time to be in media and be at somewhere new. Um, so I'm happy to take questions about Vox, about healthcare. So I just have a few brief remarks I put together here, and then I think the most interesting thing is always questions. We will get to those very quickly. Um, so I began as a health policy reporter in April 2010. Um, as many of you in this room know, that was the month after the Affordable Care Act passed. And at the time, a lot of my friends were a bit baffled because we had just gone through this big legislative fight, and they kind of thought, you know, oh, the fight is done. What are you going to write about? What a boring time to become a healthcare reporter. Um, little did they know, and, you know, we now have the benefit of hindsight of knowing that was quite wrong in the past six years, have really proved to be an incredibly interesting time to be writing about healthcare. Um, implementation and regulation are not always usually the most exciting beats to have. Um, but with healthcare, they really were. Um, they're the subject of multiple Supreme Court cases. There was another Supreme Court case on Obamacare just last week. Um, presidential debates. There was even an entire shutdown of the government um, when Senator Ted Cruz um, attempted to stop the insurance expansion from starting in 2013. Um, and it's a really big, sprawling law. There's so much going on in the Affordable Care Act. I think most of us know it for the insurance expansion and the new markets it opens up and um, the expansion of Medicaid, but there's a ton going on. You know, a few things that jumped out at me, you know, there's a 10% tax on tanning beds that's still alive and kicking, which, you know, it's the so-called Snooky tax that Senator John McCain lobbied very aggressively for. And it's a small part of Obamacare, but if you happen to be the Sun Tanning Association of America, um, whose stats I was looking up a little bit before this, it's a really big deal. Um, the association thinks that 10,000 tanning businesses have closed as a result of this tax, um, which public health advocates probably consider a win and the Sun Tanning Association of America does not. Um, Obamacare is in your local McDonald's and your Starbucks. It is the law that requires those calorie labels that tell you that the muffin you like has 500 calories. Um, so it's kind of a bit of a bummer in that way. 
And it's just, and it is regulating the largest sector of our economy. Um, our healthcare system is about one fifth of the overall economy. If you broke American healthcare into its own country, it would be the fifth largest in the world, bigger than France, the United Kingdom, only smaller than the United States, China, Japan, and Germany. Um, so all this is to say Obamacare is a very big, very sweeping law. And I, I would make the argument that how the media covers it really shapes how people see it. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of the media covering Obamacare and a little bit of the future of the media covering Obamacare in this current election cycle and kind of what that means for how we perceive Obamacare. So when Democrats passed the ACA in 2010, they definitely knew it was not popular. Poll after poll showed very large ranks of Americans opposed it. But they kind of had this theory about the law that over time, as people saw the benefits, they would like it more and more. Um, so Senator Chuck Schumer from New York, he went on Meet the Press and said, as the bill's enacted, it's going to get more popular. David Axelrod said basically the same time that over time, the law would become more popular. Um, we, know now, we now know that really isn't true. Um, the Kaiser Family Foundation in Washington has every month for the past six years run a tracking poll where they ask people, you know, whether they approve or disapprove of Obamacare. And it squiggles up and down a little bit, but it's basically the same. In April 2010, the month after the law passed, 46% of Americans approved and 40% disapproved. This year, 41% approve, 46% disapprove. So it's very similar to where we were. People's opinions haven't changed. And there are two reasons that I would argue that it's true. The first is who Obamacare affects. Um, despite the law's many pages, Obamacare doesn't change most of our insurance. Um, I wonder, how many people in this room feel like they saw a big change in their insurance when Obamacare passed? Okay, so I've got, I think, one. And that kind of speaks to the size of Obamacare, even though it's a very politically hot topic. Um, the 80 million of us who have coverage at work basically have the same coverage. About 22 million people have gained coverage, and that works out to 6% of the population. Most of us aren't experiencing Obamacare directly. We're learning about it secondhand from the news sources and the people that we talk to. And, this, and that kind of relates to the second reason that opinions haven't changed, is that in place of personal experience, we learn about Obamacare from our politics. When you do survey research, one of the things you find, I think this is also the Kaiser Family Foundation, they find that Republicans are much more likely to say they know someone who has been hurt by the law, whereas Democrats know someone who's been helped. And this you know, perceptions haven't changed in the way that Democrats haven't expected or hoped, and explains and it really reflects how our views interact with the media we consume. If you're someone who's in favor of Obamacare, you're probably more likely to hear from your friends who've heard something good about Obamacare. You're probably watching the TV networks that are saying great things about Obamacare. You're hearing this reinforced story about the good things Obamacare is doing, like expanding insurance or that healthcare costs are growing at slower rates than they ever have before. Um, if you're someone who already opposed Obamacare, you're probably hearing stories about all the people who are harmed by Obamacare and the people who lost insurance and the people who have had their premiums go up. And both of these are true stories. These are both things going on with this really massive law that Congress passed. But the set of stories become very polarized, very separate. And that is what I would argue, having participated and watched this for the past few years, is why opinions aren't changing. It's very easy to live in two different worlds where Obamacare is a completely different law. Um, so that's the past of healthcare policy, or at least a very brief past. Um, or, and now I want to spend a little time talking about the present of healthcare, the election. Um, 
it's proved to be a very different healthcare election than 2012, and not just because of Donald Trump. Um, the 2012 election was there was a very serious debate about Obamacare and can we stop Obamacare? There was um, the exchanges hadn't rolled out yet, the Medicaid expansion hadn't started. It was very much seen as Republicans' last real chance to stop the expansion from happening. And they lost the election. They did not stop the expansion from happening. And now you see in this election cycle, there's definitely a lot less Obamacare repeal talk. You know, you definitely see Republicans do endorse Obamacare, Obamacare repeal. But when you watch the debates, when you watch the campaign events, there's just so much less emphasis on repeal. And it's a hard subject for Republicans now to talk about Last time we had this pres debate in a presidential election, all the gains of Obamacare were mostly theoretical. There were people who, in theory, were going to gain insurance in a few years. Now those people have insurance. And now when you talk about repealing Obamacare, you're talking about taking away their insurance. And that really changes the debate. Um, so in place of this, you have um, something new popping up, really grandiose big plans for American healthcare that on paper fall a bit short of their promises. Um, first, I would start with Bernie Sanders' single-payer plan. And in broad terms, it sounds really great. Um, healthcare for all Americans, no deductibles, very little cost-sharing. Um, finding the money to provide that coverage is um, quite a challenge. And Dylan Matthews, one of my colleagues at Vox, he really did a, he looked at some of the analyses of the Sanders plan and found that it really likely falls short of paying for all the healthcare that it offers. One of the things he found that he had to point out to the Sanders campaign was they assumed in their initial plan that America would save more in prescription drugs than they currently spend, which means we would literally, the drug companies would be paying us to take um, their drugs. And once he pointed that out, they revised their estimates. But it shows that there are some assumptions there that weren't quite right when they were initially released. And one reason to kind of look at these plans, look, look at the big promises they make, but also the cost that they're going to entail. Um, then there is Trump care on the other side, or is Trump literally calls it on his website, quote, making American healthcare reform great again. Not just American healthcare, making American healthcare reform great again. Um, that is the actual name of his plan. Um, Donald Trump, and, and Donald Trump's been a really interesting figure healthcare-wise in the election, because he's kind of tried to set himself apart from the rest of the Republican field. Others have kind of talked about Obamacare repeal, and he really promises that his healthcare plan is going to cover everybody. Um, here's what he said on 60 Minutes was, I'm going to take care of everybody. I don't care if it costs me my votes or not. Everyone is going to be taken care of much better than they are now. So this was a really different statement than what we tend to get from Republican candidates. Um, last month, Trump released the details of his plan, and it doesn't deliver on that promise. Um, it looks very similar to a typical Republican repeal plan. The Center for a Responsible Budget in Washington estimated that 21 million people would lose insurance under the Trump plan, really suggesting that his plan is not going to cover everybody, as he has been very fond of saying. And really, I was really interested to see his health care plan because I'd been set up to expect that something different was coming, that he was going to do something crazy and Trump-esque. But then actually, we got something pretty Republican boilerplate and another reason on the other side of the aisle, just like the Sanders plan, to really dig into the details once they become available. So, you know, these proposals suggest kind of two things to me about this current election cycle. One is that we're moving a little bit away from Obamacare repeal. And in a way that makes sense, Obamacare was always seen by the drafters as the first step, that they were going to do an insurance expansion, but it wasn't going to be the last law the country ever passes on health care. The law still leaves about 27 million people uninsured. Um, even after Obamacare passes, the United States 
will still have the highest uninsured rate in the developed uh, in among developed countries. It'll definitely be lower than it would have been without Obamacare. But we still have many, many uninsured people and are still millions of people away from universal coverage. Healthcare prices in the United States are still incredibly high. Um, there are drugs that cost five, even 10 times as much in the United States than they would in other countries. Um, a big debate has been around drug prices and, for example, hepatitis C drugs, which can cost as much as $1,000 a pill here and then maybe a dollar to a pill in developing countries and you know, 100 to $200 a pill in places like Canada or England. Um, so there's a lot of left to a lot of work left to do, and 2016 seems to be the election where the conversation is just starting about that next level of work and what it will look like. I don't think we'll see action quickly. I don't think we're moving to a single payer plan anytime soon, um, given you know what we saw in just debating a public option, just debating whether the government could want run one plan out of many. But I think it's the start of a conversation about okay, what comes next? We have Obamacare. Seems like Obamacare is here to stay, and now we're at this point where the 2016 election and the conversation we're having is laying the groundwork for a conversation about, okay, what does Obamacare 2.0 look like? So that's that's what I've got. Great, <laughs> good, Sarah. Thank you. Um, so you know, the, one of the things that <clears throat> interests me about journalism is the um, difficulty of dealing with complexity, mm -hmm. um, and. Uh, you know, when you look at the Affordable Care Act, I mean, it is almost the definition of complexity. And uh, so, and the tendency then is to kind of go for the soft spot because there's always a bigger story mm -hmm. in the problem than there is in all of the things that are really good about whatever might be in the legislation. Uh, and so, you know, that tends to get into the spotlight, uh, makes it hard to govern, I think. I do think one of the big obstacles that those that would use government to do things uh, as they run against a media headwind, mm -hmm. despite conservative criticism because of the tendency to go for the negative, the problem, uh, things aren't working and the like. So um, <clears throat> when you look at an issue like kind of health care, uh, do, where, do where are you getting your cues? Are you getting your cues from the policymakers, from what other journalists are, are, are saying? Um, how do you kind of know how to get to the cutting edge of the issue? Um, it definitely is very hard, and there's so much going on with the healthcare law and so many varied interpretations of what's going on. A good example of this is um, what's happening to insurance premiums. So I get a lot of emails from people saying, my insurance premiums are going up, my insurance premiums are going down, it's because of Obamacare, it's because of this other thing. And it's really hard. It's a very complex space, and all these people are telling absolutely true stories about what's changing for them in their own experience of the healthcare system. And in situations like that, you, I'm, I think I'm relying on a variety of different sources. I'm relying on the people who I talk to in Washington. So people at places like the Kaiser Family Foundation or maybe professors here who are studying these issues or different think tanks. Um, I'm relying on people who are telling me about their experiences. One of the things I think that's been really different about um, reporting on the rollout of Obamacare than other stories I've reported on it was the first time I saw how powerful social media could be for understanding cues of what's happening. So one of the things I really wanted to know when the health exchanges launched was, that, was literally, can anybody sign up? Like, is anybody able to buy insurance on this marketplace on October 1st, 2013? 
And the way I was figuring that out was working with them. I worked at the Washington Post at the time and working with the social media team there, you know, tweeting and putting on our Facebook page, asking people to tell us about their experiences. And I talked to dozens of people that day. No one, the, um, the punchline of this is six people signed up. I did not find them. It was later in a federal report that six people were able to sign up that day. So generally, you know, I was able to figure out a broad narrative of what was happening by really going to the source. And the source in that case was people who were trying to buy insurance. Okay, it's open for questions. Uh, students first. Thanks for your comments. I was wondering about the initial rollout of the ACA or after it was signed and you were covering it. Um, do you think that the Obama administration could have done anything differently and you know, Secretary Sebelius about how they were kind of selling the law? I mean, it is extremely complex and um, I think, you know, public opinion was not very strong for it at the beginning. So I was wondering if you thought, you know, the messaging was clear, if they could have done anything differently. Yeah. Yeah, and this is something I've heard a lot, especially from supporters of the law, is, you know, oh, the Obama administration should have done more to sell it. And Obama should have been out there, and there'll usually be, like, a list of things. They could have, like, Obama could have been talking about it more, or they could have done X, Y, and Z, and then America would like it. I generally am of the opinion that there wasn't much else they could have been doing. Um, I think because of the polarized nature of media and, like, where people are getting their news, there's a lot of people that their message is just not going to reach. And one of the interesting things about polarization in Washington right now is if Obama you know, says Obamacare is a great law, a ton of people are going to think, well, I don't like Obama, so Obamacare must be a terrible law. So there's a polarizing effect, too. And you see this with um, the Obama administration sometimes taking a backseat to legislating, where they know if they get involved, it's automatically going to make it very polarized. It's going to bring in... Obama supporters, but it also bring out the people who are inclined to oppose it. I think one of the big messaging challenges that the administration had with Obamacare was in one way they're selling it as very big. They're selling it as, you know, we're changing American health care and it's this big law we passed, the biggest law since Medicare and Medicaid passed in 1965. It's a big coverage expansion. But they also want to assure people, but don't worry, your insurance isn't going to change. You'll be fine. So they were kind of caught in this weird place where they were trying to talk about how important and how big these changes were while also trying to minimize these changes for individuals. And I think I don't know a better way how they could have put those two together in a better way. I think it was a big challenge. I, I don't see anything, you know, usually the things when people suggest, okay, here's what Obama could have done, there were things they, they were doing. I, I didn't see the administration kind of shying away from the law. Um, they certainly weren't thrilled to talk about it in October 2013 when everything was a mess, but I didn't see them trying to distance themselves from the law. I just think you know it was something that they gave an effort at, but a lot of people took Obamacare as a proxy for Obama. And you know, no, no matter what messages you put out there, that's a very hard kind of connection to break. Hi, thanks so much for being here today. My name is Andrew Levine. I'm a first year master of public policy student. Like hopefully a lot of people in this room have been really enjoying the weeds, your podcast. Oh, great. So it's great to listen Thank to. Thank you. Um, I thought the episode on um, teen pregnancy was very interesting. And I wanted to know from you, uh, what do you think would need to happen for state and local governments to start subsidizing or fully funding IUDs for women? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, this is a subject I'm very interested. If you're interested to learn more, I host um, a policy podcast with my co co-workers, Ezra Klein and Matt Iglesias, called The Weeds, where you can hear us talk about um, all things in the weeds of politics. 
Um, so that's a great question. So um, right now, to a bit of context, there's a real shift in the types of contraceptives women are using. And you're seeing women gravitate towards, um, it's a terrible acronym, LARCs, long-term, long-acting reversible contraceptives. Um, those include IUDs, intrauterine devices, and implants. And um, you've seen the use of those triple over the, since 2005, um, from 2005 to 2013, the use has tripled, but they're still small. I think, you know, it's like maybe 3% of women in 2005, and now we're up to like 11, 12% of women. And one of the things you see right now is states are actually getting very interested in subsidizing these types of contraceptives because, um, because they save money, um, because they give women a more opportunity if women are able to plan when they have children, they can have more economic opportunity, go to school when they want, go to work when they want. And um, for Medicaid, it can be a great cost saver. Usually Medicaid finances about half or so of all births, depending on which state you're in. And um, so right now, there's I actually just wrote a story about this a week ago. There's a really interesting experiment happening in Delaware, where they are trying by 2017 to give every woman their same-day access to these long-acting reversible contraceptives. Usually they require multiple appointments. There's a lot of myths that prevent doctors from placing them. And I think that Delaware experiment will be a really interesting turning point if they can show that it the, the devices are expensive up front. Usually they cost you know almost as much as $500 sometimes. I think if they, if they can show that investing in these devices generates long-term savings for Medicaid, that will really um, change how states approach the issue. So this Delaware experiment runs through 2017. And I think as it wraps up, it's really going to change the conversation that states are having, and they're going to be watching it pretty closely. Hi, I'm Celia Siegel. Uh, I'm a master's in public policy student and one of the chairs of the healthcare pick. Um, I'm interested, I've been following you since you were covering the Massachusetts healthcare cost control law in 2011, 2012, and you came up and did a few stories. Um, and I'm interested in just your work in the states and what is happening right now. Like, what are what are the big things happening around either cost control or um, that are separate from the ACA implementation mm-hmm. um, that get you excited? Yeah. So one, I would say, I think the states are by far the most interesting part of the Obamacare story since twenty, like since the law passed. Um, when I was at Politico um, in 2010. Um, we were just starting this thing called Politico Pro, that was kind of a specialized news service. And since I'd been there the longest, I got to choose my beat within Pro first. And I said, I want states. Like, that is the thing I want to write about because they're so important to how the ACA is set up. And the Supreme Court decision in 2012 that let states choose whether or not they wanted to expand Medicaid just amplified how important the states were going to be. They get to make so many decisions about how the ACA works. So your experience of Obamacare here in Massachusetts is going to be very different from your experience of Obamacare in Louisiana or even in California, another pro-Obamacare state. Every state is having a pretty different experience in shaping what it looks like. Um, In terms of what's most interesting in the states right now, I unfortunately haven't been keeping as good of an eye on the cost control stuff, so I can't talk specifically to those. I mean, one of the big things that's happening is, um, going back to reproductive health, is a fight over Planned Parenthood. We have multiple states, Florida just yesterday, um, attempting to defund Planned Parenthood, which um, in Washington, the Center for Medicare and Medicare, Medicaid Services has said is illegal and they can't do. Um, but that's an interesting fight that kind of has been playing out over the past few years. Um, the sting videos taped inside clinics that came out a few months ago really recatalyzed that flight. And um, 
you really see it has very important repercussions. There's been a lot of really interesting work on what's been going on in Texas since Texas defunded Planned Parenthood. Um, there's a great group there, the Texas Policy Evaluation Project um, at the University of Texas. They've been doing a lot of interesting studies showing, um, their most recent one showed that there was women got less birth control and had more unintended pregnancies after Texas defunded Planned Parenthood in 2012. Um, they figured out a very roundabout legal way to defund Planned Parenthood um, that I can talk about more or is kind of in the weeds. Anyways, they have shown that there are very serious repercussions. So I think one of the most interesting things in state health policy right now is how they're handling reproductive health and like what is changing in access to those services. Hi, uh, my name's Sharon. I'm a sophomore at the college. Um, I was interested because in an episode of The Weeds, you guys talked about the Medicare doc fix um, mm -hmm. and how um, that's sort of a big bill that has moved away from the fee-for-service model. Mm -hmm. um, and I think an interesting argument is that as a country gets wealthier, um, it's not necessarily bad that percentage of spending on healthcare rises as a share of GDP because like, it makes sense that you want to spend more on like, mm -hmm. wellness and health. Um, so I'm wondering if there, like, um, what you see next as not just curbing costs, but also mm -hmm. improving quality per dollar we spend on healthcare, um, yeah. and what the government can do, and then also if, if you have any previews for this week's episode of the week. Oh, <laughs> I do. Actually, we, we tape on Wednesday, so we are just getting ready today, and we're going to be talking about electronic medical records, which is boring to most people, but exciting to Weeds listeners. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, so I think you bring up an important point that a lot of times in Washington we talk about cutting healthcare costs, and it's very important to cut healthcare costs. And there's you know good argument for that, particularly in the government. If we're spending more on healthcare, there's less to spend on other things like education or roads or the various other service that the government provides. But I think you know healthcare costs were rising, but we were all living to be 200 and in perfect health. We'd say, oh, you know, like maybe I am okay with putting half of GDP towards this project where I get to live so long or have this incredible, you know, where we're curing cancer. So I think framing the conversation as, you know, what are we getting for our spending? Right now, we're spending a lot more than other countries. It doesn't seem like we're getting that much more, which is why I think the argument for cutting costs is strong. If the United States was spending twice as much, but also, you know, having incredible healthcare outcomes or huge leaps in longevity, then you'd say, well, you know, that's a trade-off we've decided to make. Um, so I think the conversation, you know, makes sense to think about what are we getting for the money that we're spending and um, frame it around that. Right now, so the doc fix did change. The doc fix law finally passed about a year ago now. And this is a law that um, kind of governs how Medicare is paid for. It's trying to shift the system from paying just for fee-for-service, paying doctors for every test and surgery they do to kind of a more... Um, a more holistic approach where we're encouraging doctors to kind of help patients get healthier and not rewarding them just for doing a lot and a lot of medicine. Um, I think the jury is still out on that. It's just getting rolled out. The regulations are coming out. So it's still a pretty new law, but that's something the Obama administration does seem pretty focused on during its last year or so in office is um, kind of trying to make some of these shifts in how doctors are paid. And I think that'll be kind of the last step of the Obamacare healthcare legacy is um, trying to change how Medicare payment works. And we'll see in like a year or two what that changes about the care that seniors are getting. Yeah. Uh, so I'm Dan Kennedy. I'm a John Schoenstein fellow here this semester. Um, you mentioned that consistently uh, when people are asked whether they favor or oppose Obamacare, 
they consistently oppose it. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what you could tell us about polling regarding different aspects of the plan, mm -hmm. not using the term Obamacare, maybe not even using the term ACA, and mm -hmm. assuming that the response to that was more favorable, and mm -hmm. I've read that it has been more favorable, does that suggest that there might have been a different way of framing the whole health care reform question in a way that we wouldn't end up with um, you know, half the country continuing to be unhappy about Obamacare without even quite understanding what yeah. it is. No, there's some really interesting research and polls and anecdotes about this split. Um, one of my favorites, I've played it in talks before, there's an amazing Jimmy Kimmel segment where he goes around asking people which law do you like better Obamacare or the Affordable Care Act and people like have like a very strong immediate opinion um, and like yeah, it's like designed to make them look kind of dumb I honestly you know if if you're not if it's not changing your health insurance you know I don't actually think you need to know these things I, I think there's plenty of other things people are worried about and like it's fine that they don't know but I think it speaks to the different connotations that the two have and this is actually a question I've gotten as a reporter from, um, you know, when I wrote at Womp Blog, you know, I'd say most of my readers were in favor of the Affordable Care Act, and some of them would write and say, well, why do you use Obamacare? That's negative. It's going to make the law less liked. And I think every major newspaper at some point had to make a decision in their style book about whether Obamacare was a term they were okay using. Um, Womp Blog was online and a little bit separate from the Post. We had a little more flexibility to kind of do our own thing a little bit. Um, I became fine using Obamacare once President Obama embraced Obamacare, where he basically said, you know what, I do care, um, I'm fine with the term. <laughs> I don't know if that was the best strategy move on, because then it kind of gave everyone freedom. And honestly, it's so much easier to write one word than the Affordable Care Act, um, just like in terms of, you know, working through your article. Um, but I, I think it, ref I don't think the term was the driver of the negative opinion. I think the term is the outcome of the split around Obama, and that as long as it was a law passed by this president who has a lot of strong supporters and a lot of strong opponents, that whatever it would have been called would have kind of been destined to have this kind of split. It's kind of goes back to the earlier question, you know, is there anything else they could have done? Um, maybe there is, maybe it's one I haven't thought of, but when I look at kind of the landscape of how people get their news and how how differently you can view what's happening with the healthcare law, that kind of convinces me that there's just this group of people who, you know, you're not going to reach on both sides, that there's a group of people who are always going to think Obamacare is great, no matter, you know, if they hear some kind of horror story, they're going to say, well, that's like a one-off thing. And you have it on both sides of the issue. And um, I think because so few people, like I said earlier, are kind of experiencing it directly that we kind of all have to rely on what news media we choose to watch, and that really kind of shapes our opinion of what the law is doing. So it's just really hard for me to see what else could have been done to kind of shift public opinion. Hi, I'm uh, Greg Allen. I'm an MPP here, and I'm a big fan of your work, have been since 2006. Um, so the founding of Vox is, as a journalistic institution, is kind of an argument about what is the best way to present information. Uh, to the general public and also to just conduct journalism. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of very interesting choices that Vox has made about um, aggressive presentation of data and use of graphics, but also um, sort of uh, putting uh, very substantive in the weeds policy news mm -hmm. right next to celebrity news 
and also having these sort of like permanent card stacks, which is like a permanent uh, sort of encyclopedic resource. So you know, there's a lot of really interesting decisions that Vox has made in its way of like conducting in journalism. Uh, so I'm just curious, you know, how's it going? Uh, and I guess I, I mean that in terms of, you know, this is an argument about the new form of journalism and what's best for the business, what's best for consumers and getting information, and what's best for um, society and the ability of, um, you know, policy institutions to make uh, great use of the stuff that you put out there. So how's it going? It's, it's going great. <laughs> so, yeah, so Vox is an argument about journalism, and it's, I think it's an argument about what was missing in journalism. Um, so I worked with our editor-in-chief, Ezra Klein, at Wonkblog at the Washington Post um, before, and one of the things we kind of learned at Wonkblog was there seemed to be, and I think it's from a lot of people in this room, a real appetite for policy news, that people didn't, people definitely like reading about politics, People were interested in learning about policy, but they didn't really have a great um, resource for that. And policy was kind of treated as um, as like the vegetables or the Brussels sprouts. I'm stealing an analogy from my boss, Ezra, that it was kind of like the thing you had to read and the, po and the politics was dessert. And his kind of argument was like, well, you can have like really terrible Brussels sprouts or you can have like really delicious Brussels sprouts and you can actually like try and make policy interesting and you can, you know, really dive into it and like, do the work to make people kind of interested in it. And we, I think we got a little bit lucky at Wonkblog. There was a time where a lot of policy was happening. There was so much more than, you know, when I look at that time frame, we were working at Wonkblog, like, what was that, 2010 to 2013. Um, There's just a lot happening about the policy space. And we just took the questions that people had and we tried to answer them to the best of our ability. And I think that's kind of what Vox grew out of. And one of the, Kind of founding ideas of Vox is that if readers aren't interested in our stories, that's that's not on the policy issues. We can't just say, oh, well, that's a boring issue that's not going to get attention. You know, that's on us as journalists that we have to work harder to make our stories more accessible and more interesting. I think one of the challenges and one of the ways that um, the internet is kind of changing the way we consume news is it used to be when you just did a newspaper you'd kind of you follow a story in iterations where you'd get one update one day, one update the next day and it would kind of build on each other and there'd be a, a progression between the news articles. Um, and that still happens in the news, but there's some people who come in like a week later and want to know what's going on. And that's kind of where we see our space that we don't think you should have to have to read this serial of articles that we should kind of meet you where you are as someone who's reading internet, um, who's reading journalism on the internet and give you a good explanation of what's happening. Um, so you'll see a lot of the pieces that do best for us that are most widely shared, most widely read, are um, big explainers on big subjects. Um, things like nine questions you were embarrassed to ask about um, Syria. Or we had a video, probably our most popular video ever was a five minute video explainer on what's happening in Syria. Um, I think it's racked up a few million um, views on YouTube, which is a good success for us. So we find, and again, like Syria probably isn't an issue. It's one of those issues that you could write off as the, oh, that's the thing like I should know about, but I just like, I can't approach. It's too big. It's too overwhelming. And so we kind of said, well, what, what can we do to make it approachable? What can we do to make it accessible? And I think that drives a lot of our thinking at Vox is um, kind of meeting our readers where they are and trying to make the news as accessible and um, kind of not using it as an excuse that something's a boring topic. We can make things interesting if, if we work a little harder at them. 
Uh, my name is Margot Ferris. I am an MIT science writer and reporter with uh, StoryBunch, which is the um, Northeastern University's J School um, newsletter for the future of digital storytelling. And I have kind of a two-part question. Um, one, going off of uh, the previous question, um, what is your favorite storytelling medium, um, whether that's blogging, print, uh, visuals, podcasting? <laughs> Um, a bunch of stuff. Yeah. And two, um, what advice can you offer new journalism students wanting to get into health, medicine, and health policy? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll take the first one, f- the second one first, and think about the first one as I'm answering. Um, so the advice I would offer is um, just try, and this is probably some pretty old school advice actually, just try and do as much writing as you can. Um, try and, I found, you know, I became a journalist because I worked on my college paper and learned a lot there. I learned so much about how journalism worked in a very safe environment where you could fail and have relatively few people notice that. And, um, you know, I think all of us at Vox, we came up through different backgrounds. Ezra and Matt started as bloggers. I came from a more traditional news writing background. But I think what we all have in common is we kind of tried out the thing we wanted to do a lot. And we kept trying it at different places and like doing it a lot. And I think that repetition was really helpful in learning how to be a journalist. And just, um, so when I, you know, I think there's some entry level jobs in journalism that might be like an administrative job at like a bigger newsroom, or then you might have a reporting job in a smaller newsroom. I would always go for the reporting job in the smaller newsroom because I think you're going to learn a lot more about the skills you're going to need. Um, I generally recommend people kind of like think about the work that they want to be doing and like where is the place they can do the closest approximation of that. It doesn't matter if it's your personal blog, if it's a tiny newspaper, um, but if you can start practicing the work you want to be doing, I think that's a pretty good way to get started. Um, And then in terms of my favorite medium, there's so many to experiment with right now. Um, This is such a cop out to your question, but I think I like whatever is like the new thing I'm trying out is my favorite. Um, I switched to a new job at Vox um, in November where I'm our managing editor for visual, so I manage all our data and graphics folks, people making cool interactives and graphics. Um, and what I love is that there's so many different ways to tell stories. Um, my favorite story I worked on recently was a long story about teenagers, where um, we basically took, we asked people to give us their age, and we showed them no matter how old you are, this generation of teenagers is the best behaved in, on, gen, on record, that they smoke less, and they have sex less, and they drink alcohol less, and they fight less. And um, we gave people a personalized story based on how old they are. We compared you to today's teenagers. And that was so much fun and people really liked it. Um, we found that it had like a lot of people putting in their ages. So I don't know, I always, I am so excited to be trying out new mediums. And I think um, kind of like learning about new ways to tell stories is kind of my favorite medium. So more like an interaction, so more of an interaction with uh, your audience. Yeah, sometimes it's an interaction with your audience. Sometimes, um, you know, one of the things I've learned in my new position at Vox, which is totally separate from healthcare, is that media is definitely moving to like a more interactive. We want people to do things. We want them to scroll things and click on things. And like, if we're going to ask people to do that, we have to give them a really good payoff. Um, In general, people just want to scroll on their phone. That's how they want to like move through a story. Um, and a lot of times we like to build fun things that require you to click things and do things and readers are just going to kind of check out. So one of the things, you know, I guess, you know, to circle back to your original question, my favorite things are stories that give a real, a reader a really significant payoff for doing something. Um, another example is we just post, one of our reporters posted a story Friday that's a tax calculator that says give us your income, um, your marital status, how many kids you have. 
we'll tell you what your taxes will look like under Trump, Cruz, Clinton, and Sanders. Um, and, and that's another one where we do ask you to do something. We give you a really cool payoff. So I like stories right now that are um, kind of delivering to readers when we ask them to do something kind of above and beyond that we go above and beyond too. Hi, I'm Marina. Um, I work for Harvard Magazine. I too am obsessed with the weeds. So <laughs> happy to have you here. Um, I had a question about Vox too. Um, one of the things I find really interesting about it is it seems to have moved beyond this debate about objectivity. We're no longer mm -hmm. pretending that reporters don't have opinions about the mm -hmm. things they're reporting on. I think um, you know, I think this is clear in your, mm -hmm. some of your work. It doesn't pretend to be neutral on certain mm -hmm. questions about public health and um, reproductive rights mm -hmm. and so on. So I was just wondering how people at Vox think about that question yeah. and talk about it with each other. Yeah, no, we definitely, it's something we think about and are conscious of. I think it's very clear and different from other newsrooms that some of our writers come from a very clear opinion writing background and have strong opinions. One of the things we do think about in that space is, um, being very respectful and um, open to the people that we might disagree with. So having, um, treating people seriously. I think one of the things that's very easy to do on the internet is kind of like dismiss people out of hand, write something like very flippant, kind of, you know, write someone else off who you don't agree with. I think at Vox, we've accepted it's fine if there's people you don't agree with, but you have to treat their arguments seriously and you have to kind of consider their viewpoints in a legitimate way. Um, you know, a good example, you know, one example I'm proud of in this space is when I was covering the Supreme Court case last summer um, about the Obamacare subsidies and whether the Obamacare subsidies were, were legal or not. I had a very strong opinion on that case as someone who covered it, that I thought they were perfectly legal, that definitely Congress intended um, for all the states to have subsidies. This is, you know, as someone who had covered the debate on, um, in Congress, this is an opinion I developed kind of based on my reporting. And I had a clear vision, I had a clear opinion about where this Supreme Court decision should land. At the same time, you know, I was, did a very long interview with the guy who brought the challenge. And, you know, I thought it read as respectful and like took his, his arguments, you know, we gave his arguments space and I responded to his arguments. I didn't just write them off as like dumb or stupid or like, you know, a willful misreading of history or like how other people you know, who disagree, how you might kind of just brush someone off. Um, I really enjoyed kind of, even though we clearly had a disagreement, kind of understanding how he saw it. You know, we printed that on Vox. So I think, you know, in our newsroom, we definitely do understand that people have opinions about the subjects they're covering. That doesn't make it okay at all to dismiss the, um, to dismiss the opinions of people you disagree with. And I think it actually makes our reporting a lot stronger if we're constantly engaging with people who we disagree with and like learning about their viewpoints. I think that's only going to make our work stronger. Hi, Sarah. Um, I'm Marilyn Thompson. I'm a Shorenstein Fellow. Um, how would you describe the sociology of the typical uninsured American mm -hmm. at this point? And what is the best journalism you've seen on that subject? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so I think, so right now, we, there are still a significant number of uninsured Americans who are eligible for programs, who could be signing up for things. And at this point, I think a lot of, I think they might fall into two different, I kind of see them in two different categories. One are people who um, have made a conscious choice not to get insurance, who um, might look like people in this room, who are young and healthy and see it as a better deal to pay the mandate than to buy insurance and kind of just take that risk. Or they might 
actually have um, if they're if their income is low enough, they might not even need to pay a penalty. And they've made a conscious decision and kind of looked at the money they'd spent on insurance and said, you know what, I'm willing to take the risk. I think that's one side of it. I think the other group of people um, are people who are very disconnected from systems, who have not been reached. Um, there's a decent amount of survey research suggesting that many of those who um, are still uninsured are eligible for programs, but unaware. They don't think they're um, eligible for whatever Medicaid or for the exchanges. And I think this group is a very different group. They're a hard to reach group. They haven't even considered the idea that they might be um, eligible and that they are, it, it, well, I guess, and then one other group I'd put in are people in the Medicaid gap, are people who live in states that decided not to expand Medicaid and they are just not eligible for anything. So they might know about it, but there's just not much that they can do. Um, to be, there is no piece that comes to mind as like a good piece about who are the uninsured Americans. I would love to read that story. <laughs> um, there's nothing that jumps out at me that's been written recently, but I'll think about it. I'll, I'll tweet about it if I remember it. Um, Sarah Cliff on Twitter. <laughs> Hi, my name is Michelle. I'm a staff at the medical school. Um, I had a question. I had a question that you guys talked about um, in your writing and on the podcast a while ago about Maryland and all payer rate setting. Yeah. And it's something that they've done for you know three or four decades now. And why in other states looking at it, why have they not adapt, adopted it? Or have they considered it and rejected it? Um, why is that cool experiment not really reaching uh -huh. the rest of the country? Yeah, that's a great question. And there were, when Maryland passed theirs, there's a whole bunch of states that passed them and ultimately repealed them. I think this is like 1980s-ish. Um, John McDonough, who is here, um, has written, not in this room, but works here, um, has written an excellent paper on the history of all-payer rate setting in the United States. Um, I think, actually, Maryland has had some struggles with this system, which might be one reason it hasn't caught on elsewhere. They recently had to um, renegotiate some of their waivers with Medicare because what they found is while prices were staying very low, the volume of services was going up very quickly. It seems like Maryland doctors were seeing that they couldn't earn as much per service. So they were essentially, um, they, were, they were doing more services. And just um, by way of background, Maryland is the one state in the country that um, sets hospital prices. So all the hospitals in Maryland will charge the same price for a hip replacement or an append a, a appendectomy or whatever surgeries it is that they're doing. And the system was great at holding down costs, but then a few years ago, they ran into some problems where they were doing this high volume and that was driving up the overall cost of the system. Um, they renegotiated, uh, and they have to do all this through a Medicare waiver because they have to have different Medicare prices than other states, so the Medicare prices can be the same as the private insurance prices and the Medicaid prices. Um, so they had to renegotiate their waiver with Medicare, I wanna say in 2013 or 2014. Um, and it, I don't remember the exact details of it. I knew this really well when it happened um, and I'm not as up to date, but they basically tried to switch and this kind of fits with the ethos of the Obama administration to um, kind of a more global budgeting system where you know there would both be price setting, but also thinking about a cap on what overall spending is going to look like and making um, kind of hospitals each live within a budget. So I think other states might be looking at how that is going. Um, and yeah, I haven't heard much talk about other states moving in that direction. I personally think it's a pretty successful experiment and has proved um, to do pretty well, even with its bumps. But other states, you know, I think inertia is a pretty powerful force and um, other states are 
just kind of letting their systems go along as they are. I think if it were to happen, it would probably be in a pretty small state um, where you feel like you kind of get your arms around the healthcare system. I think it'd be really hard to pull something like this off in California, but maybe, you know, in a small northeastern state. Who knows which one? Um, maybe this is like a little bit more feasible. I also wanted to get you to talk about what happened um, in Vermont to the plan to um, create a single payer mm-hmm. system. Um, I, I think some parts of the media created the impression that it just, v- Vermont residents realized it was going to cost a ton of money, so it was mm-hmm. abandoned, but um, it's not, it isn't that Vermont was going to spend mm-hmm. a lot more on healthcare other than the added cost of insuring people who, who weren't already in, um, insured. So I, I wanted to get you to talk about you know, when it was time to implement it, what, what happened? Who were the interests yeah. who said they were unwilling to, to do it? Was it insurance companies, hospitals, yeah. rich people? Yeah, so um, Vermont was a really interesting story. They came the closest any state has to setting up a single-payer system. This was kind of 2013 through, I guess, twenty four. the end of 2014 is when the effort stopped. And this was under Governor Shumlin there, who um, had been a big supporter of single payer, who really liked the idea of getting everyone on the healthcare system. And it really was moving along. Um, I was up there in March, when was it? It must have been March like 2014 in the middle of like a massive snowstorm. Um, and it was really moving along. They were coming up with these plans. What And they knew it was going to be, um, was going to raise taxes a lot. I don't want to say it was going to be expensive because people would stop paying for healthcare, they'd start paying a lot more taxes. The Shumlin administration really underestimated how much they would have to raise taxes. And that's really, there was a report that came out in December 2014. Um, I don't remember the exact numbers, it's online somewhere, but basically showed that taxes would have to go up much, much more than the Shumlin administration had initially thought. And, you know, it's possible it would have still saved money at the end of the day, um, but it was such a shock to the system that the governor of Vermont decided not to go forward with it. Um, I think one of the things that's very hard, and you know, this will be true if, if we had a President Sanders, it would be true for him too. One of the things that's very hard about implementing a single payer system is that it really changes who pays for healthcare. So even if the cost stayed exactly the same, one of the things it does is it shifts a lot more of the burden to the wealthiest Americans. So because you're working through the tax system, you're going to have wealthy people paying a lot more and poorer people possibly paying a lot less for their health care. And it's a hard, it can be a hard sell for Americans who earn more, who are going to be, have to contribute much, much, much more than they typically do. And they're going to have to contribute much more than covering their own health care. Right now, I think most of us are used to we pay a premium, we get our health care, we kind of feel like we're covering ourselves, essentially. And a single-payer system requires us to change that mentality and think about covering everybody and covering people who can't afford to pay their entire premium. And I think that was one of the very big obstacles that it faced, that these tax increases would be very, very significant for higher-income residents of Vermont. And it wasn't that they protested, it was very much this report kind of came out, the Shumlin administration saw the numbers, and they decided it would be too disruptive to move forward. So they, they ended up tabling the plan themselves. Um, hi, I'm Emma. I'm a PhD student. Uh, what, what do you find to be the most difficult part about reporting in Washington? Um, uh, and specifically, uh, you talked a little bit about mm-hmm. the ethos of the Obama administration um, with how they communicate their plans to the administration. Um, but 
also with with working with the Hill and, and various <laughs> advocacy groups, um, what is what is the most difficult, and then also what's the most rewarding about Washington specifically okay. staying out of the state? Okay, <laughs> um, the most <laughs> difficult thing about Washington is such a boring answer is getting people to talk to you on the record. Um, so to go back to the states for a second, one thing I love about reporting on the states is like. You can call a state legislator up on the number on their website and it's usually their home and like sometimes their kid answers and they talk to you about whatever's going on and it's like great and fantastic. And then in Washington, there's like three layers between like you and who you want to talk to. Um, my favorite, most hated emails in Washington are emails I sometimes get from spokespeople that say, off the record, no comment, which is like something that happens. It's like not even a joke. Um, like these are emails that I get as I try and be a reporter. Um, so that's definitely one of the hard things about reporting in Washington is just it can often be very difficult to talk to people. I will say one of the things that surprised me most and that I do like about being in D.C. is that if you actually do go to the Hill, legislators are shockingly available. I found it insane when I started working in D.C. in 2010 that you could like just literally hang out in Congress and like wait for someone to walk by and like shout your questions at them and they would actually respond to you, which is actually great. It's very democratic and I think it's fantastic. Um, so I do like how accessible legislators are in that particular situation. But in general, it can just there's, you know, a lot of fear of talking to reporters. Um, there's a lot of a lot of hoops to jump through to talk to people. Um, so I'd say that's the thing I like least about working in Washington. I think the thing I like most is that um, especially being a beat reporter for the past six years, I've really gotten to know a lot of people in this space. And like, I feel like it's a really it's great to be like very close to all the people you're writing on. We have um, um, a lot more people working remotely. I think a lot more people are, a lot fewer people are going to in-person meetings. Um, there's a lot more that happens over email, um, even over Gchat at this point. A lot of things that would have happened in person or in phone calls, you know, maybe a decade ago. Um, I really like being in the same place with a lot of the people I'm covering, where I can meet with them a lot, that it's, I find it a lot easier to build a rapport with the sources that I'm working with when they know who I am and I know who they are. So that's one of the things I really like about being in DC. And you know, everyone, even though there's a lot of fighting and a lot of people who don't agree with us, everyone in Washington seems to like really care about what they're doing, which for better or worse, you know, it's nice to work with people who, you know, even if you don't agree with them, like really believe in the work that they're doing and feel it's important. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks very much, so much for your talk. Um, I'm Joanna Jolly, I'm a Joan Tronstein Fellow, and I also work for the BBC. So our website looks at your website all the time. And we think, oh my God, look at what Fox is doing. How can we copy you? How can we be anywhere close to what you're doing? I'm just wondering from the other side, do you look at us like the old media? And do, do you regard us in any way? Do you sort of think, is there something we should do more or less like the BBC? Or oh, way? yeah, I mean, there's so much good stuff, and I think, like, even in like, old media, there's a lot of cool, innovative things happening. Mm -hmm. um, so I love seeing what other people are doing. Like, you know, yes, we look at the BBC. Like I have like one, <laughs> there's a really cool calculator you guys did on BMI that I can talk about later. But um, yes, we look at stuff people are doing. And I think, you know, like I, there's everyone's doing interesting, cool things right now. And I love seeing the different ways people are experimenting. I, it, one of the nice things about being in a new newsroom is it's definitely very easy to experiment because no one's going to tell you that's not how we do it because we don't have a way that we do it yet and we're still figuring out how it is that Vox does things. Um, but we definitely look at the stuff that you know BBC, New York Times, Washington Post, 
Um, new websites too, like Stat here in Boston. I'm like constantly impressed by. Um, yeah, so we're looking at all sorts of people because I think there are very interesting creative people in every newsroom and there's a lot that we can be learning from people who've been doing this longer than us as well is something that we can be learning a lot from. Hi, um, I'm Sandy Ehler from the Institute for Learning and Retirement here. Uh, I'd like to know what you're learning about the cost of drugs uh, under different plans. Uh, who benefits and who loses? Mm-hmm. Um, in a weird way, both the U.S. and the the United States both benefits and loses in our high in the high cost of drugs we have. So right now the United States has incredibly high drug costs. Um, they just don't compare to any other country. Um, there's a wonderful report that the International Federation of Health Plans put out each year comparing um, how much the exact same drug costs in different countries. And you'll see a bar graph that's like all oh, these little bars, then like the United States, where it's literally the exact same pill being sold for two, three, four times the cost here. Um, and the reason we lose is pretty obvious that we're paying more for the exact same pills. The reason we benefit, and this is you know an argument that pharma would make, and I do, I do think there is some validity to it, is that the United States is paying so much more money into drugs that leads to more money in drug research, more innovative drug production. And that's, you know, that's near certainly true, that if we have more money going into R&D, we're going to have more research, um, more innovative drugs coming out. But there's some kind of trade-off between innovation and access, I think. If we are making amazing drugs that five Americans can afford, I don't know if that's a worthwhile trade-off. And, and we have a very real situation like this right now with um, drugs that cure hepatitis C. There's a new class of drugs that have been coming out over the past few years, Harvoni and Savaldi, that are really expensive. They cost, I think, usually about $90,000 for a course of treatment, but they cure hepatitis C. So very important drug. It's great that it exists. Um, it's also out of reach of a lot of Americans. Um, I wrote a story about what I thought were some pretty interesting lawsuits where some insurance companies are requiring hepatitis C patients to get sicker before they'll give them access to their drug because they say they can't afford to give it to all the hepatitis C patients. So I talked to a guy in Seattle who has like very early stage liver disease and he, he wants to take this drug, but his insurance company says, no, your liver disease has to get worse before we're going to give you this drug. So I think that's a very real, like, is it worth having this hepatitis C cure? If, you know, a lot of, if this guy is stuck having to wait till his liver disease gets worse, would we want, would we be okay with a drug that has a cure rate of maybe 80%, but like everyone can afford? Um, so I think, you know, the United States is benefiting from all this innovation, but it is very much at the, at the cost of access for a lot of Americans. Sarah Cliff, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by ExtremeMusic.com.